Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. In the Democratic debate before the nomination, um, Democratic primary, uh, there was a couple of housing questions. All of the candidates felt like they had to have a housing plan, which even if they're just bullet points, the fact that their advisors, I mean, I've talked to these people and I remember one of their advisors said like, like, I never, I never felt like I had to have a housing plan before. You know what I mean? And now we do. So that's something. But I think the most important thing that's happened and is happening is this sort of sociological change where younger people are kind of, I mean, under 40 and even older too, but you know, we're, we're, but where people are starting to like take, we need enough housing for people as a value. It's like a value the way like, like I care about the environment became a value in the 70s. got an incredible conversation between me and Connor Doherty. He is the economics reporter at the New York Times. And last year, he wrote a book called Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis and a Reckoning for the American Dream. Everyone all over Twitter, group chats back from high school has been really obsessed with the topic of housing lately. Why is it that it feels like a lot of us, especially the millennials in the audience, can't afford to buy a house? Why is the rent so damn high in the first place? And why does it feel like there's a homelessness crisis across cities like Portland, D.C., New York, Austin, San Francisco, basically anywhere you could imagine? Sagar's not going to be on today's episode, so I wanted to make sure that I brought a topic that all of us would be incredibly interested in and really relates to the experiences that all of us are feeling in our everyday lives. Quick side note, 10 points to anyone who writes in and figures out where Sagar is right now. Let's just say there's going to be some really, really awesome content dropping on the Breaking Points YouTube page this week, so be sure to subscribe and check it out. We've also got an awesome interview on Thursday that Sagar will be back for. You are going to enjoy. Eric Weinstein has graciously followed through on his promise to come on the podcast whenever we ask him to, so I'm really excited for that conversation. We're going to pick up where we left off right after January 6th. It's going to be a really incredible conversation, so be sure to check into that. And, you know, let's just get into it. It's really straightforward. This is going to be a great week, and I'm really excited to keep chatting with you all. So let's dive into the episode. Connor Doherty, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I love that you have the power broker up there on your shelf behind you. It's all signaling. We're trying to, we're signaling yeah. that I read the three body problem. Dune is there somewhere. And of course the power broker. So we're going to, that's all going to fit into all the themes of the show. For those of you who are not keeping up with your book covers on my shelf, the power brokers by Robert Caro. It's about the building of New York city in the mid 20th century and really focuses on bureaucracy and all this stuff that seems super boring, but as we're going to get in today, all this stuff is incredibly important and deeply interesting to all of you. Actually, we can, yes. Topic. And we can actually bring, I think we can actually bring the power broker into this without going into too much depth about its 600,000 words. Uh, it might even be longer than that, but it is long. Um, I read it. Um, I've read parts of it before, but I did like, I sat down and finally was like, okay, I'm going to do this. 
um, during the pandemic. So, uh, I mean, it's like longer than War and Peace. It is, yeah. it is a, a mountain. It's the, it was worth it. It's the book put Robert Caro on the map, but we're here to talk about your book, Golden Gates, which is a book which is, it came out during the start of the pandemic. And as every author knows, this was a terrible time for a book to come out, but you're in the useful and lucky category of this book is just going to get more relevant as time goes on. So this is something that we can revisit more than a year later and everything is totally relevant. Everything still really matters. So in the preface to the new paperback edition, which we want people to check out, you really point out that you started this book with a question, which was basically why is America's housing problem seemingly impossible to solve. So I want you to define something. What actually is the housing problem in the country right now? So no, that's that's actually a great question. Maybe I should have started with that question in the in the new preface. Um, and thanks again for having me. Um, it's really great to be here. I love talking about uh, housing. Um, I think the problem is people spend too much on housing and they can't uh, so, so too much of their income is going to housing and they're not able to invest, save, um, you know, survive in the cases of the, uh, the most unfortunate. And so that's, that's a waste and it's unfair and there's social justice and, and other things attached to that. But at a basic level, it's people pay too much. And I think the other problem with housing is that because it costs too much, it's very difficult for people to organize their lives in the way that's best for them. So people can't, uh, you know, we know that school districts um, are very tied to housing. We know that how long it takes you to get to your job, what kind of job market you can access. You know, all these things are very tied to housing. And obviously the Bay Area is the most dramatic example of this, which is why I focused on this in the book. Uh, it's a great test case, it's a great narrative, it's a great way to bring people into this in a way that helps them understand one place, but to use that as a window into all places or a lot of places anyway. But if you look at the Bay Area, here's this area that has had tremendous job growth. Uh, the, it's creating the industrial age of our time. You know, the jobs of the future, the training of the future, all these things are in places like that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say the Bay Area is the only place in the world. I'm just saying these multi-trillion dollar corporations are there. Um, and they're, and they're creating the future and they have the jobs that people say are the jobs we want people to be aspiring to. And yet people talk about the Bay Area as if it's some insane luxury to live there. Oh my God, you live in Bay Area, so expensive, right? And I just think that's unfair because you know all of America um, has played a huge role in building these companies. They're all funded in some fashion or form by government research into the internet and defense department. I think I read somewhere that something like more than half the components in the iPhone are patents that the Defense Department can right? So our sort of collective, if you will, has created these kinds of companies and yet living near them, getting in on the, the jobs and the wealth and, and having an opportunity to get into a company like that and um, you know, get all the free healthcare or whatever, you know, yeah. like all these things are seen as like a big luxury. Now, I don't want to overdo those companies. I just meant this accessing opportunity, be it Nashville, Minneapolis, um, San Francisco, Seattle, uh, Austin, whatever, is, is, is dependent on housing. And so whether it's we're spending too much, we're not able to organize our lives in a way that's good for us, or we're not able to access opportunity, I see that as our housing crisis. Now, of course, there's also a homelessness crisis 
and all that, um, which we can talk about at length. There's obviously chapters about that. But I mean, I think at a very large level, the reason why I think this is a national crisis that affects so many people is it has disrupted so many people's lives and made it harder for them to get ahead. Yeah. And I want to get to homelessness in a quick second, but is there a difference between the housing, so purchasing a home, and then the rental part of this crisis? You know, anyone from the mid-2010s will remember the rent is too damn high mm-hmm. as just a meme word that really mattered. So is there a, are these related? Are they the same thing? It would just be great to get some context on that. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that they all have to do with the supply of housing and the market for housing and how easy it is to find, you know, land prices and, you know, how much shelter there is. Um, I think that they're related in the sense that they're the same policy problem. Now, don't get me wrong, you could fiddle around the edges. Um, There are people who will say, why are we building $10 million condos when we should be building affordable housing? Great question. I think that's a great area, you know, to um, try to come up with policies that optimize what you think the market needs, right? Um, but there is a scarcity of all kinds of housing, right? Actually, there's a scarcity of everything besides ultra luxury housing, which is which is actually by all indications oversupplied. But they're they're the same, but they're obviously very different in the sense that renters never get ahead. So that you know they're kind of always dealing with the rent, whereas homeowners, once you're in, you're and we can talk about this in just a second, but you know, once you're in, you are making money off the inflation. And that's part of the problem, which is that we see home appreciation as this big wealth building tool. And that's fine. It's, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Um, the forced savings of home ownership, um, as I don't know if you own a home, but if you do- I do not. not I even... rent in Williamsburg, so I'm very okay, much so the center of everything just we're the, talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's not just the appreciation, right? It's the, as you hopefully will learn one day, it's it's not just the appreciation, it's the forced savings. You know, like there are lots of reasons why homeownership is a good thing, right? But it also, I don't think we're better off as a society if you're getting like crazy rich off of it, um, off the appreciation anyway, uh, because that sort of indicates that more and more people are being locked out. So are they the same? Yes, they're the same, but obviously there are differences um, in terms of who those people are. But I think the same phenomenon, phenomena are generally driving both of them. Depends on what level, if you want to be at 100,000 feet, yes, it's the same. If you want to be at two feet, they're completely different. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, at a large kind of global economic level, they're sort of similar. And you hinted at this a bit during your answer, but where does the debate over gentrification fit into everything you're just saying? So with the, you're building $10 million condos, but you're not building affordable housing. How does this all fit into that? So let's just define gentrification for a moment, because this gets a lot of people have a lot of arguments over this, right? Gentrification is a is basically uh, wealthier people moving into a neighborhood that's less wealthy um, and raising the rents and home prices based on the demand of this sort of outside group coming in. Right. Um, I think that's generally speaking, you know, and the reason that's gentrification rather than say just the world is doing better or, or, or general wealth building. If you, you know, if everybody in a particular neighborhood 
uh, was in living in very good times and all of a sudden all of them were making way more money and their homes and rents and right like like that's kind of like what we want I mean, we do want people moving in and out of neighborhoods just based on their own life preferences, but we don't want them feeling like they have to be pushed out of their own neighborhood, right? You know, um, so so that's gentrification. Um, and gentrification, you could also think of as this term filtering. So there's a term filtering real estate, which basically means things can filter down, which means, um, you know, you have a, a, a home that used to be expensive is fallen into less repair, there's more homes in the area, whatever, and it becomes more affordable. But you could also have upfiltering, which is basically gentrification, which is that you have homes that were previously affordable and now they become higher because some outside groups. So where does the housing, I, I believe, and a lot of people believe that gentrification has a lot to do with the lack of supply uh, in housing, that there's not enough affordable housing, but there's not enough of any housing. Now, I get in a lot of fights with people about this, both in real life and in Twitter. We still have a big income inequality problem in this country. You know, um, our cities have bifurcated in such a way that um, we've kind of fallen into one kind of higher end category of jobs, which are called knowledge jobs. Um, people who use a computer in some way to multiply themselves, be they at finance or technology, um, people like you, to some extent, uh, entertainment. I mean, certainly large podcasters have gotten very wealthy because they can reach hundreds of millions of people um, or, you know, millions of people with with just sitting in a room with the power broker in the bookshelf in the back. Right. And then but then there are, are people who um, do service work, um, you know, clean homes, uh, walk dogs, whatever, you know, teach yoga classes. Now, some, some service people make a lot of money. Doctors are performing a service, right? But, but a lot of them are doing these in-person services. Now, what's significant about that in cities is the people who are doing these service jobs basically have to be there. They're essentially doing all the jobs that nobody automated yet and can't be automated yet, mm -hmm. right? So this kind of knowledge group that makes a lot of money and this service group that is effectively waiting on them, have to live next to each other. So they have to occupy roughly the same housing market. And that income inequality has played a big role in hurting people at the bottom, right? That is definitely part of the equation. But I also think that the general lack of supply of housing at a lot of levels is part of the problem. And gentrification is a, um, is a, is a symptom of that because it's basically showing you that wealthier people uh, can't find something in their price range. And so they're going, you know, down the ladder to find, um, they can't, they can't find a place. So they're going, you know, now we could get into all sorts of stuff about trendy neighborhoods and whatever. Mm. And I think that's a little part of it, but I don't think that's part of it on a, on a, on a very high level. Can you answer then the critique of your position that you raised earlier, which is that if you just increase housing, you're just going to have a bunch of really expensive buildings for rich people to be built and not actually address the inequality issue you're hitting at. Totally. So one of the things that comes up, particularly in the uh, uh, nuance free space of Twitter, <laughs> is, um, is that if somebody believes that America has a housing shortage, right, that they are somehow um, disbelieving that America has um, a, an income inequality problem, right? 
and that they are also somehow disbelieving that there isn't a, a good, you know, in affordable housing, or and and then that they're disbelieving that policy can, um, you know, can can push certain types of housing over others, right? Um, and that's just not true. Like, meaning, you know, I, I think you can you can believe that America has a housing shortage and that increasing it with a mix of market rate housing and affordable housing, you can believe that. And for some reason, um, the, if you say, well, we have a housing shortage and that's the root cause of our problem, if you say that you were suddenly a libertarian, you are uh, an advocate of supply side economics, you, are, um, you believe in trickle down everything, right? And, um, and I just, I just kind of reject that. And I, I, I love podcasts because you don't have to be that person on a podcast. Um, and I think it would be just as, you know, that there are some zealots who will tell you that the only way we can solve this is massive amounts of public housing or supportive housing that, you know, that we need to get like, uh, everybody needs to live in public housing or, you know, some version of that, right? But I think both of those polls are pretty much a minority view, you know, that most people think, you know, whether or not they really want it in their backyard or in, in their neighborhood or not is another matter, right? But I think most people agree that there is a need for some amount of government support for um, people who can't afford what the private market is building, right? Um, but that there's also a need for enough but that there should be a robust private market for people who can afford it, right? You know, we don't want the government running and owning every single aspect of housing. And I don't mean that as some boogeyman thing. I just mean it would be a whole new job. It would change how everything works. You know, I, I don't, if we had built our system that way, maybe it would be fine. There, there are, you know. Um, anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is the critique is usually a critique that says that you think build, 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 and that'll solve everything. And I'm like, no, you need to, you're gonna need universal section eight vouchers. You're gonna need more affordable housing. You should probably try to find ways to make total absentee buyers who buy $20 million condos that they've like literally never been in. You wanna make that a lesser part of the market to the extent that land is a scarce quantity, right? I think it's possible to hold all those positions, but on Twitter, you're not allowed to. On this podcast, you are though. So the last definition question I want to get to, and I don't want to sound crass, so push back if I'm not framing this the right way, but I often hear homelessness brought into the conversation we're having. And for me, at least in the year 2021, I'm a little confused because, for example, I just I used to live in DC up until three weeks mm -hmm. ago. I just moved to New York. In D.C., especially during the worst depths of the COVID pandemic, the people who you really saw on the streets, these were clearly people who had mental health issues, drug usage issues. Mm -hmm. So my reaction, these are not folks who would have been buying, purchasing, renting anything. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand how people tie the conversation we're having about affordability into that dynamic. So for example, we all know the stories that definitely exist of dispossessed families or people who have housing insecurity. I get that part, but I don't understand how that tracks to homelessness, homeless folks. No, and I'm very happy you 
brought that up because that is a very commonly held position. That is a common belief. That is a common experience that you're walking down the street and you see someone who seems sick in um, various serious ways. And you can't even imagine how that person can um, go through the hoops of finding a, you know, applying for an apartment and, you know, showing up, right. You know, um, price aside. Yeah, no. or, Or showing up to work to, you know, or anything, you know what I mean? Like, okay, here's the reality. And this is a reality. There is a paper that just came out by an economist named Bruce Meyer, who studies poverty at the university of Chicago. Um, very serious. He's absolutely not an advocate. You know what I mean? Like he is a, um, he finds about 50% of people who have experienced homelessness work. And by work means they file federal tax forms. Um, He finds that only about a quarter of the homeless people have severe mental illness, right? I mean, if we start saying like anxiety, whatever, you know, which, which, I mean, Obviously, crippling anxiety is different than like sort of, right? You know, but but I mean, only about a quarter have like severe, severe problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you find that um, homeless people don't move around more than the general population. It's generally in line with it, you know, that they are usually from where they um, are homeless, right? So. And the thing is, if you spend a lot of time with homeless people, as I have spent, maybe not as many as some reporters, but a lot, um, you find that the people that they're that the most of the people who are homeless are kind of good at being homeless. <laughs> um, you don't see them. They don't go find the most crowded part of the city and just pitch a tent on the street there. You know, they they find a place where they can sleep. They find a, um, either a large homeless encampment in some cases. Um, you know, they, there are people who pitch tents who are pretty normal, I guess. That's one of the things is as it becomes more normalized, you start to find a community, right? Okay, but um, so what I'm saying is, is that homelessness is a housing problem. Here's why. It used to be, uh, I don't really remember this, and you definitely don't remember this, but it used to be that there were kind of bad sections of town, <laughs> Um I hate saying that, but, you know, things that places of town that in movies were sort of portrayed as Skid Row or, you know, the pawn shop is next. Right. And they had these residential hotels and these were hotels where people would spend, you know, ten dollars or whatever to get a room. Uh, The bathroom would not be in the room. It would be like a communal bathroom in the hall. And. Um, and you, I think you had to put your own sheets on it. They had like plastic on everything, you know, like not nice hotels. And at the time, of course, there was a debate about, is this not good enough for people and whatever, right? You know, but, and these, there used to be tens of thousands of these kinds of units in cities around the country. Uh, and many of them were demolished to build the neighborhoods we think of today as the sort of nice, new, cool redeveloped, gentrified neighborhoods, right? And I'm not using the term gentrified as a boogeyman there. I'm just sort of saying, and and many things about those neighborhoods have obviously improved, right? Quick interruption, because I'm almost 30. So Mm -hmm. if you're saying I don't remember, I couldn't remember, what what, what time period? This would be like the 70s. Okay. Okay. I didn't, um, I wasn't trying to make you 22. No, no, I just wanted, because I'm just trying to, I'm just trying, because you're you're correct, because you're you're correct that I can't remember this, but I'm like, when is this? (laughs) 
So well, actually, here's a, here's an example I always give in uh, talks. Did you ever see, even though you are only 30, Big with Tom Hanks? A lot of yeah. people have seen that movie, even if you know they didn't yeah. see it in the theater. Um, and of course, everyone remembers the piano key scene, right? But there's this other scene where he becomes big, you know, he wakes up and he's big and his mom thinks he's a stranger and an invader to their house. And anyway, and then he goes and tells his friend and they sing the song and his friend is like, whoa, that's really you and whatever. Okay. And they have to figure out where they're going to, where he's going to sleep. Cause he can't stay at his friend's house. Cause he's like 30 now. And, um, and, and he can't stay at home. So they get like, you know, $12 or whatever a kid who's 12 or 10 or 15 or however they were in the movie, he, um, they get some small amount of money and they take the bus from New Jersey to New York and they get him a hotel and they go to this terrifying looking hotel where this guy who's like bad teeth or something like burps at them. And then he goes like $5 or whatever. I forget what it was. Actually, we should go watch that. Um, and he hands him the sheets. And then that night, Tom Hanks goes to this room that has no bathroom. Uh, and he's hears screaming and, you know, it's, I think he may hear a gunshot. I forget. And then he's so scared. He pushes the dresser, uh, in front of the door and just like sits there and cries right now. That is a hotel that I don't know where it was, but let's say it was in the Bowery or someplace like that in New York. You could imagine all of those people. Those are the people who would have been homeless. If that, um, if that very, very, very cheap option, you know, didn't exist. Now at that time, you could be like a kind of like an occasional day laborer, mm -hmm. and maybe have a drinking problem, and um, and still find a room for like ten or twelve dollars, you know, or or the you know what I mean. If you could find a really the equivalent today of like a three to four hundred dollar a month apartment, right? Um, maybe a 500, I don't know, you know, I'm not doing the perfect inflation here, but the point is an option that someone with like a social security disability check, which is about $1,300, um, could just be like, you know, could totally live month to month, not comfortably, not, you know, but, but with that, right? And that, that's one reason um, that, that and, and homelessness, which um, the first real great study of homelessness was done in 1981 in New York. And the um, authors of the study, who are uh, one of whom is still at Columbia today, uh, they found that many of these people who they saw living on the streets had lived in residential hotels uh, that were closed down as, as New York was redeveloping, right? And that same thing is true across the country. There's a guy who wrote a book called Living Downtown about Skid Row in Los Angeles, same conclusion. Um, so I'm not saying that like, you know, we have to have exactly these types of hotels or whatever, but my point is you need some sort of radically cheap housing that somebody like on a social security disability check can afford. Now, will there still be a number of, um, well, and, and let me also add that when you look at what sort of homelessness interventions work, they do all these studies, does this work, does that work? And then you find out like, I was talking to um, a homeless researcher about this, Dr. Margot Cushell, she's at UCSF and is like this, you know, world's expert in homelessness. And she always says, you know, we do all these studies and we track all these things, but then you find out that in the middle, they got a $400 apartment. And she goes, sometimes I wonder, did any of the interventions matter more 
Like, did any of the interventions about like, you know, drug counseling or whatever matter at all? Or did what, what mattered was they got a $400 apartment, right? So if you start asking yourself, who are the people who are, um, I guess what I'm saying is, is that will there still be people who are unable to care for themselves in a multitude of ways of which housing is just one? Will those people exist in a society and have they always existed? Like, absolutely, right? Does that explain the scale of homelessness we have in America today, like not at all, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is, is that yeah, mental health, drug addiction, a general kind of problem, you know, a lot of homeless people I meet don't have the best family ties anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, imagine if you had no one, you know what I mean? Like beyond yeah. the depression, you know, there's like safety net things, you know what I mean? Like, you know, um, and so I guess what I'm saying is, is that um, the cost of housing is what pushes people into homelessness. Um, it's not to say that they don't have, you know, it's not like there's some, you know, Harvard educated person um, that, you know, has no mental health problems and great job prospects and then gets fired one day and is like, oh, I'm homeless. Right? Yeah, of course, of course that doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I really struggle with and can't stand, frankly, is that when I write a story on homelessness, somebody basically complains like, oh, this person's an ex-con or this person, you know, is stupid with their money. Um, oh, the, why doesn't this person do, you know, and you're like, yeah, those things are all true, you know, and yeah. yet they're still on the street. They're still in this tent. They're still, um, you know, like. Not everyone has, um, you know, there there are not perfect homeless people, but that doesn't mean they should be homeless. I think this was such a useful bit of this episode that I want to highlight for people, just because when I was asking the question about mental illness, I was thinking, and I know very little about this issue, obviously, I was just thinking about the received narrative we all have around Reagan opening up the mental health hospitals in the, or, you know, the psychiatric facilities in the eighties. I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I had no idea around the structural non-related parts of that bit. So just once again, huge part to highlight for people. I want to, we've been really focusing on narratives here and I want to take a step back then and focus on what the American housing narrative is. Cause I had an experience. So I'm from Portland, Oregon. I went back last December before, not even last. So the December before COVID and I was hanging out with a friend and we're hanging out and he's mentioned, oh yeah, I'm renovating. And I go, why are you renovating? He goes, well, I just bought this house. And I was just shocked because coming from DC, East coast, I don't really know anyone who purchases a home, even though, like I said, I'm almost, you know, 29, 30. So I'm in this cohort of people who you know, we're Henry's, we're, you know, going to be upper middle class someday, everything's great, but most of us are all still renting. And I was just thinking that from a historical perspective, like that's kind of insane that I'm 29, 30, and I don't really know people who buy or own houses. So can you just place this within two things? So one, what do you think the American narrative around home ownership is today, especially in contrast to the 1950s stereotype of the white picket fence? Let's, let's deracialize it too. Just totally remove the racial aspects of this. Just like the idea of like, hey, like you get married, you're 22, you're 23, you got a nice house in the suburbs, you commute. What, what, what do you think it is today? 
One of the things that bring up in the book, in the preface, not in the preface you're talking about, but the, the one that comes after it, is in 1945, Life magazine did this article on California. And they were trying to sort of project how American life would change after, you know, as World War II ended. And, um, and they profiled three, co- three people in LA. Uh, one was a um, film composer who was rich, made like the equivalent of seven or 800 grand a year in today's money. The other was like a salesperson who made, you know, 120, 150 grand, which would be, you know, pretty good, but middle-class-ish, depending on what city you live in, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. um, I mean, single earner or whatever, right? You know, I mean, you can definitely have a two teachers. Tulsa, you're a king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but you can definitely have two teachers who make that kind of money if they're double income. Anyway, um, if it's two incomes in the family. Um, and then um, and then a fireman, Leroy Loeffler, which I always remember him, um, who uh, made a good equivalent of 40 grand. Now, one of the things they, they all lived in single family homes. They all had big yards. They all had decent. Now, obviously, there were differences, but the mm-hmm. differences between how they lived were not that great. You know what I mean? And I was just speaking to a woman the other day who um was telling me about how her father was an aerospace engineer and they lived on this house with like the large backyard in the neighborhood. And the guy like next to them was like a milkman and he had like a small yard. And it's like, okay, that's like, those are our, this is how we calculate our differences in America. Like the engineer gets like a bigger yard and the milkman just has like a smaller yard and that's inequality. Yeah. Right. Um, Now, as you say, race is a huge piece of that. FHA loans, which these people, particularly the the lower income or, you know, the fireman guy, FHA loans had this thing called redlining. And as you, all, all my housing people know, redlining was basically a system in which the government specifically would not lend to black neighborhoods uh, or even mixed race neighborhoods. And so essentially you have a government program that like gave free money or gave lower interest loans to, um, to one group of people, not another group of people. And, and that explains a huge part of our segregation today. It, that one decision explains a huge amount of our wealth inequality today. Um, black and white families at that time, though white were obviously wealthier, um, not it was nowhere near as big as it is today in the sort of disparities in housing wealth, many of which were driven by that one decision because that's how you got in. It explains in a, a remarkable amount of our racial wealth gap. So it's, mm-hmm. it cannot be understated in terms of its legacy. You don't get to go back and say, oh, you know, we can just undo that now. We don't have housing discrimination anymore. And you I know, just so, want to clarify something yeah. real quick because um, I could have been too quick when I said this. My point yeah. wasn't that that didn't, and you're not saying this, but oh, no, 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 I'm, yeah. my point was not that racial disparities didn't matter. I was getting at the quote yeah. unquote ideal, but yeah, please go on. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that that is the picture of the ideal. Mm-hmm. That is the that is the reality of what was going on in that time is that there really was great in a, equality and upward mobility amongst a great amongst a great many people, milkmen and aerospace engineers and stuff like that. But that black people and, and Asian people, you know, were were in California. There were all sorts of rules specifically targeted at Asians. Um, were um, were excluded, right? Okay, so what does that dream look like today? I've thought a lot about that. Um, I think that dream looks like either A, you are commuting to the 
um, you know, you, there's, a, there's a large classes of people, you meet them in San Francisco who rent for life. You know, you'll meet all sorts of teachers who get into a rent control department, they raise their kids in it, um, whatever. Now that's, that's probably been true in New York for quite some time because New York's got more of that because it's a denser environment, it's more expensive, right? Um, so that's one thing you're starting to see more cities. You, you meet people in LA and stuff like that who do that, which was not the case, say, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you're starting to see more people live in duplexes and triplexes. Um, I think you're starting to see um, more, um, you, you, you're seeing people move further to the exurbs. I mean, remember that that option is already always there. I mean, there's still tons of people moving to the San Joaquin uh, Valley or, you know, the Central Valley of California or Riverside County. So, you know, there are all these super commuters that go to L.A. every day from um, um, very far away. So those options are there. But um, I guess if I had to sum it all up, I would say there are fewer owners. Um, It's harder to get in. The amount of money you have after rent is less. Um, And there's less upward mobility. There's less ability to um, collect or to, there's less um, ability to um, get in and start to build wealth um, through, you know, and on top of that, remember, there used to be people who were like kind of small time landlords and had a, like a little set. One of the things I. Any turn of the, any like 1950s, 1960s movies had that character. Well, but one of the things I always think about is that when you go talk to people in of, of any race, any income, there's like a familiarity with the landlord. Like everyone's like a lot of people have like kind of been landlords before. You know what I mean? Like even if. Mm-hmm. um uh, you know, they were, even if they had like a lease and they had like a roommate situation, but they were sort of like the master roommate or, you know, um, and uh, anyway, I'm just, I'm just saying that, that a lot of these sort of opportunities for ownership and all that have, 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 have gotten further and further from people's reach. Now I should note, this is most intense in, um, in what we will call superstar cities or cities of opportunity or whatever. Mm. Now, I hate the term superstar city because it sort of implies that a place like um, San Francisco, Seattle, or New York are just so much better and more important um, than other cities. And that's not what it means. Um, Because there's this really bad meme within culture war circles of, well, these, you know, blue cities, they're the ones with the highest GDP and they're producing everything and it's other parts of the country. It, it just leads, thinking around those terms to your point, just leads people to not productive well, areas. Yeah. Well, although we could put some nuance on that since it's a podcast, yeah, please um, do. but, uh, you know, <laughs> no, what I'm saying is Minneapolis is a superstar city. Nashville is a superstar city. Austin is a superstar city. Boise, Idaho is a superstar city, right? Like, I don't think these people think of themselves as superstar cities, but these are cities with great job growth, great economies, high education, high um, level of kind of um, productive jobs, meaning jobs in knowledge industries, stuff like that, right? And that is what I think of as a superstar city. Portland is one of those, right? So cities that have that, some weird combination of high education, and productive jobs, uh, meaning like an industry like computers or something like that, um, in a growing industry, um, is is a superstar city. And those are in red states, 
and they are in blue states. Now, the little bit of nuance I would add to that is that they're overwhelmingly blue cities. Even Boise as a Democratic governor, or mayor, rather. Um, and there has, of course, um, we could have a a long talk about that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, I'll just throw this out there. This yeah, is please. not a this is not a a proven thing. This is just me thinking about this, you know. Um, if I was more of a Substack writer, I would probably write things about this, but I always feel like I, I can't do it unless I have like my whole thesis, but you know, but since it's a podcast, but um, I sometimes think to myself that the like culture of a, of a growing robust city is sort of like, you kind of want to get there and do your thing. You know what I mean? Like you're, mm-hmm. you are, you left DC, you're moving to New York, you got your thing, you're very excited about it. You're sort of, you know, you know, you don't, you're working very hard, you know, you're not like volunteering at the church. Um, and not, not because you, because you're young, you don't have enough time. Maybe you'll do that when you're older. I'm just, I'm just sort of saying, right. You know, there's like this real upward mobility thing. And maybe that's a problem with America, whatever, but that's like the culture of a lot of cities. Right. But you know, when you go to smaller towns, like people don't let people become homeless. They're like, oh, Johnny's got a problem and we all got to pitch in. And you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I don't even mean it like it has to be that small, but I just meant there are institutions like churches, there are institutes, mm-hmm. there are local kind of communal institutions that are able to solve big problems because A, everyone cares, it's smaller. And B, you know, you don't need a massive um, apparatus to do it, right? No and anonymous. I think- because yeah. that's the key. That's the key thing. Yeah. And I just think, well, and also you can, you know, everyone can throw in five bucks or whatever. It's, anyway, my point is, is that I think that there is something to this idea that when you get in a big, complicated city, people are sort of like, yes, please just tax me and solve these problems for me. You know what I mean? Like, like meaning that there is a, I do believe there is something about cities that they're big, they're complicated. And people are just sort of like, yeah, like, I'm very open to having a robust social apparatus to solve these problems because I don't really want to do it. You know, um, but you just raised the there's an obvious follow up here though, which is that if that is true, then why haven't these cities, quote unquote, solved this issue? Right? Because well, I'm if not talking, saying oh, that's okay, a whole other yeah. matter. You know what I mean? But yeah. I just meant, you know, and then also cities are multicultural and stuff like that, and so of course they're going to have more um, sensitivity about that just because they're. Um, you know, have more neighbors, right? Anyway, uh, bottom line is this. All the problems we're talking about are most intense in growing places, be they Minneapolis, Nashville, or San Francisco and New York, places that have a lot of wealth and a lot of, um, you know, and a lot of activity. And it's increasingly happening in places like Dallas and Houston, which, and Atlanta, which really are the cities of America's future and are cities of the present and the future. And, um, you know, because that's where a lot of people are moving, but, but they're increasingly having these problems and, and they're running out of land and you can sort of see this, you're kind of like, better get ahead of it because I know what's coming. But anyway, my point is, is that you don't see this, you see a different problem in Detroit and Dunkstown, Ohio, in these decaying sort of post-industrial cities that have had a really tough time with either the loss of agriculture or the loss of manufacturing jobs, other things too, but that's like the main stereotype. Um, you know, those sorts of cities have, they do also have housing problems, but they're very different. And so I think principally what I'm writing about is places that I think of as places with where opportunity is great and the sort of jobs of the future lie. 
So this is something I'm wondering about. There's a billion things that go out over, and I really suggest that people check the book out just because there's all these intertwined things. We can't hit every single one, but what I'm also interested in is the role of the tech industry in this debate because I get a little frustrated. So we we had Brad Stone who has covered Amazon right now. Oh yeah, so we've, we've me and Brad we, went to a Giants game together once. <laughs> small once again world is these worlds are shockingly small actually unshockingly small is a better way to put it but so we've 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 dealt a lot with the amazon discourse and the amazon discourse is you know amazon comes in tech companies come in they make everything expensive this 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 and that but when it comes to the corporate issues especially when you cover this in your book i actually know sonia um who, who you go into people in these cities like san francisco bay area a lot of the Yimbies, the people who want to quote unquote build more housing, the people who are most, hey, like it's expensive here. We don't like that it's expensive here. Let's change the policies. They tend to come from the tech industry. Like I don't know anyone in the tech industry, especially in the Bay Area, who I would describe as being a NIMBY, like a not in my backyard person. So I guess I've there always. So, so <laughs> you don't I, I, I need I need that nuance because I just get very frustrated because I think people are lazily. I think people are lazy about the tech causes things to get more expensive debate. And I would like some nuance to that because it just doesn't reflect my like personal experiences. It's always easier to focus on what's happening right in front of you uh, than it is to sort of think back, like how did this really happen? What are the structural issues, whatever, right? Um, and don't get me wrong, what's happening right in front of you often is the problem, you know, don't, not always. So, it's important to remember that the Bay Area has been the center of the tech industry for a really long time. Um, you could argue going back to like the war, the World War II, you could, you know, at least the 50s and 60s, right? You know what I mean? Like Intel and all those companies were being developed in the 60s in the Bay Area. That was preceded by um, Fairchild Semiconductor, right? So, so this has been a part of our community and our business sort of base for a long time, right? Uh, and I'm not saying it was as big as it was, but I'm just saying that has been our thing. The reason the Bay Area has prospered so much has been because it was a tech hub. And that has been true since I'm 43. That has been true for much longer than my life, right? Mm -hmm. On top of that, the Bay Area tech industry and the sort of counterculture elements of the Bay Area have a lot of crossover with each other. The internet was developed as this decentralized platform in part because a bunch of hippies designed it. Mm -hmm. um, there, and I don't mean that as like a, like a flippant joke. There's a whole book called What the Dormouse Said that, that meticulously documents the crossover between counterculture people like Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog, which you may or may not know anything about, and, um, and the tech industry. And if you look at some of the utopianism that Steve Jobs and people like that. Yeah, he was a Stuart uh, Brand guy. Yeah. Those, that tradition and how it's passed down, you still, these people from Google still kind of act like they're running like a nonprofit rather than a giant corporation. Like, um, you know, that belief, that meaning, the way that these people all have to, you know, think that they're, it's not just about a business, but, you know, right. A lot of that comes from this, like, even if the, even the people who don't know it, um, a lot of that comes from that tradition. So I guess what I'm saying is like, let's just remember that the tech industry is us. I mean, mm -hmm. 
shoot, think so many of the people who are anti-tech are tech. I have literally been in arguments where you see a Google engineer fighting with a Google engineer over like gentrification. I'm like not remote. Now that's more at the like democratic socialist versus YIMBY's level. So it's like, there's a sort of like college privilege kind of crew happening there, you know, but anyway, but I meant, I just think that's a good, it's good to remember. It's not this outside force that just showed up. You know what I mean? Like the whole development of the region and that industry have happened in concert. And, and I think that there are aspects of the region that made tech flower there. And I think there are aspects of tech that have made it wealthy. You know what I mean? I think they've, they've worked together. I think that um, tech has become much more visible because it's become much bigger. And it has also more specifically become much bigger in the city of San Francisco. Um, Twitter, uh, you know, a lot of these tech companies, Twitter, Uber, are now ab actually based in the city of San Francisco. And so they're sort of like the sort of more, shall we say, boisterous um, political culture of San Francisco is sort of much more directly against tech. It's not like San Francisco and activists in the 60s and 70s were like going down to Palo Alto to complain about, you know what I mean? I, I, mm -hmm. For those people who don't know, I mean, the Silicon Valley is like not that close. It's like 40 miles away. Um, really bad it's, traffic. You know, yeah, well, you know, it's funny, this is a whole other thing, but I always say like, there's this whole experience people have when they land in San Francisco airport and they drive into the vaunted Silicon Valley and like, wait, this is it? It just looks like some like strip mall of Phoenix. You know what I mean? Like, like it's like this that's very- really good way of, I was just, I was in Phoenix. For, that's, a, that's a very good way of putting it. <laughs> no, that's what it feels like. I mean, you go inside the offices and they're impressive and well-designed, but the, I mean, the basic gist of it is like, strip malls and office parks and single family neighborhoods, right? Um, so um, uh, anyway, so I guess what I'm saying is, is that it, I think a couple things have happened. I think it has run into the, um, it has run into the sort of political culture of San Francisco because it is much more based in the actual city of San Francisco now. And I think also, you know, and this is where a place where I do think tech does deserve a lot of blame. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say blame, but, you know, responsibility. There are things like tech buses, um, which obviously became a big flashpoint in the gentrification wars, right? Now, leave aside tech buses. Like, you and I could have a very logical conversation. Can you explain like, what those are? I, I, I oh, know what I'm they're, sorry. yeah. Okay. So there are these large buses that these luxury sort of, this is obviously before the pandemic, um, these luxury, um, you know, kind of coach double-decker Best bus Wi-Fi you've buses. ever seen. Yes, best Wi-Fi. And they say G-Bus and things on them. And uh, they come and they pick people up in neighborhoods and then take them down to the Silicon Valley. And the reason is a lot of Silicon Valley people now want to live in San Francisco and they have to get to work in Mountain View. Now we could have a, like you and I could have a very logical discussion about this. Well, um, this is a company trying to get access to talent that they can't get in Silicon Valley. Um, well, is it better that they have one bus or hundred cars on the road. Well, if public transit was better, they wouldn't have this problem. Well, you know, we could, we could, we could logically parse that out. We could come up with some kumbaya policy solution, right? But if you're a, a, a you know, and, and, and in the meantime, if you're a company, you're like, I got to solve this tomorrow, send a bus, right? Okay. But I think that that attitude, there's a problem tomorrow, I got to send a bus feels discordant to people in a neighborhood because they're like, you know what? Our public transit sucks. Why isn't the like biggest corporation like really working hard on that? 
you know, it starts to feel like people are opting out of the collective good, that, that, that they're opting out of public services, that they're opting out of these things that we share, right? And can so- I Can I understand that real quick? Because so for example, there are, you know, tech founders like Patrick Collison of Stripe who are very activisty around yeah. housing. He like specifically mentioned moving from SF. So in 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 that category though, when you say people feel like the companies aren't solving, I guess we should take a step back and think about what people like the idea of something versus the actual thing is probably the idea of thing. The idea is that look, our public transportation is garbage. It doesn't feel like our city is well-funded, and we get the sense that these corporations aren't paying their fair share for a variety of reasons versus like it's the actual – people think that like, wait a second, it's the literal job of you, – you, you kind of get what I'm getting at. I'm just trying to understand how people are feeling. One of the things is I, I think that people blame tech because it's it's grown a huge amount. I think because it's more centered in the city of San Francisco, and I think because there have been things like public buses – um, and Ubers and things that really sort of have tried that, that sort of portray a kind of privatization of the world. Um, you know, um, I will also say that the tech industry has sort of adopted this like uh, prominently Mark and and stuff like that. I don't think this is widespread true, but you know, like this kind of more libertarian tone. Um, the um, creator of Silicon Valley, you know, that show, uh, yeah. you know, Mike Judge, mm -hmm. he told someone. Um, this was in a in a New Yorker article that he really felt like what that show was really about was the conflict between the new libertarian Silicon Valley and the old hippie Silicon Valley. You know that that was like the the conflict at the center of the show. That sort of like ideological, you know. And I thought, you know, that's so interesting because that is that does feel at times like on a very high philosophical level, like what part of the like. I remember someone once told me a friend of mine who hates tech. Um, he was like, is a skater I know, and because I'm a skateboarder, in case um, you didn't know that. And he was like, it's not the nerds that bother me. It's the MBAs I can't stand. And I thought like, you know, that's like a funny, um, don't get me wrong, there are plenty. Uh, anyway, it just was a funny way to put it, right? Well, there's some weird, you know, it's funny because- well, well, let me give you another example. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Did you see that whole thing where like, there was a huge video that went around where there was a couple guys from the company, I think it was Box or Dropbox or one of those, um, and they had reserved a soccer field. They'd like yeah. gone online. And of course the kids who play at that soccer field every day, what the hell you reserve the soccer field, right? And that's this like, that's this like, I think that speaks to the kind of privatization, the like sort of, we got ahead of you in line because we figured out how to like, you know, reserve it online, you know, Not anyway. quite knowing so, the culture know, of the space you're in. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? Anybody who actually plays soccer here knows we play soccer here on Saturdays. Like, I don't care that you went to the city's website to sort of reserve the field today. You, you know what I mean? Like, you know, and I think that, that there's, there's, there, there is that sort of privatization thing. And I think also there's this feeling that people feel like something's been lost. Now we can talk about housing. I think that the fact that Anyway, you were saying something. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just no, no. Of I just, I just want to. I get my one chance to yes. offer a little nuance here. And I think that the example I really like Mark Andreessen, and he's an interesting case because I like him too. I just meant I understand he he's not like a full on hippie the way the old dudes were. Oh, totally. And I, I think there's and it's just in the sense that he's not. He's the definition of someone who isn't 
the Stanford MBA. I, the, the nuance I think I would add to the critique is that like there's like the Stanford MBA type who migrated from the who would have gone to Wall Street two decades ago, but it's come to the Bay Area because that's more of a thing. And Mark Andreessen also interestingly he had a great essay, Time to Build, that really focused uh, a lot on the housing issues there. But as we're nearing the end here. What I'm curious about is I feel like you've given a really strong picture of what the broad space is, like what the narratives are. We've had a year of COVID, so there's all these narratives around whether cities are over. They're obviously not. I moved to New York. That means something. I know a lot of folks who were digital nomads the past year who are desperate to get to New York or Miami or Austin, so that really says something about the resiliency of human nature. Where do you think all this goes? Because the most interesting, fascinating thing I really caught once again, you had a seriously, I, I'd love everyone. If everyone basically could go and just read the preface of your book, because that's how I outlined the show, it just hits everything everyone needs to hear. And the point you made is that since the 1970s, there's actually been a lot of ideological consensus around what someone needs to do to address this issue, why the issue happens, all those parts. And in many ways, what the book actually is, I think I'm close to quoting from you, is an exploration of the forces and people that have actually prevented that consensus from actually getting implemented. So where do you think any listener who's interested in this topic, I picked it because it's something I just organically see from folks, people who write in with questions, Twitter, just friends back home on your old Facebook feed that you don't really check that often. Everyone's talking about this. So just where does... Where does this go from here? Because nothing's more depressing than going back and reading policy papers from the late 90s that basically say whatever we could say now. It's not as if there's been an innovative new yeah. housing paper in the last year or so. Well, I think it's important to, so I, I have some, are you saying is there something they should go back and read from that time? That- well, no, just, no, just what, where does this go? I mean, I, I feel oh, like the, yes. the, any, any listener's reaction to our conversation is going to be, okay, like we get it. We kind of already knew this was bad. Where does this go? So, okay. A couple things are happening. One is around the country, there's been a lot of movement on adding light density You know, so Minneapolis outlawed single family zoning. You can now build three homes on a lot, Um, three three units on one lot. Um, The number of cities have added these ADU laws, which allow you to build backyard cottages. Um, But essentially some of them are pretty substantial. So you can build like an apartment in them. Um, uh, And so there's a lot of ways in which we are sort of like starting to move on developing single family home neighborhoods a little bit more. And I think that's a that's a, a a gentle movement, and B it sort of shows like there there are now people building these. Is there now real stuff happening there? You know, there's now like a um, you know on the negative side, you now have investors bidding out people for their single family homes. But um, but you know, there's started to be some some uh, neighborhoods will start to change a little bit, and maybe people will find that they're not that bad. Um, I think you were starting to see like President Biden, President Obama, even to some extent, President Trump, um, were all pretty, spoke a little bit about this issue. There was a, uh, in the Democratic debate before the nomination, um, the Democratic primary, uh, there was a couple of housing questions. All of the candidates felt like they had to have a housing plan, which even if they're just bullet points, the fact that their advisors, I mean, I've talked to these people and I remember one of their advisors said like, like I never, I never felt like I had to have a housing plan before. You know what I mean? And now we do. So that's something. 
But I think the most important thing that's happened and is happening is this sort of sociological change where younger people are kind of, I mean, under 40 and even older too, but you know, we're, we're, but where people are starting to like take, we need enough housing for people as a value. It's like a value the way like, like I care about the environment became a value in the seventies. It was not, that wasn't something that people held. Obviously there was conservationism and stuff like that, but like a sort of broad based, I am worried about the environment. It was not like a, like a huge social value shared pretty widely throughout the United States until like the seventies or eighties. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just give you a kind of a, a stupid example, but I think it's an important one. I live in Rockridge, which is um, a like nice neighborhood of Oakland. Um, I'm the NIMBY neighborhood of Oakland. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying, but, but, you know, and so, and we have this like little land commission. Um, we, or we have a little, like, a, a, it's called the, I forget exactly what it's called, community planning council or something like that. And it's like this body, nobody that, that has no real power, but they can advise the city on certain things, but it ends up being like a voice for how the neighborhood feels about things. And there was just like a, like a really raucous election uh, for this little board that most people don't care about where you know you have to go to our little library and i mean this is just for our neighborhood and it was the like very pro housing people like ran a slate there was all these articles about it in our little like the little newspaper they throw on your um on your uh, doorstep and you know there was this like really fierce debate over no we are going to start trying to be like a more affirmative and this is like the nimby neighborhood of Oakland. we're going to try to be more affirmative housing also, there's like a little farmer's market near me and somebody wants to build a 19 story uh, building on a college campus that's a little behind me. So it's, it's back there. It's not like in the middle of a single family home. And um, there's, of course, like a booth at the farmer's market and it's like, stop the tower, you know, and people will walk up to it. And it's not every person. It's not even every third person, but like a, a noticeable minority of people, you will. I sort of go and eavesdrop because I'm so interested in housing, will come and say, well, we need the housing. You know, so I think there is, and Mark Andreessen writes his build, build, build essay. So I feel like there's starting to be like a value that, you know, we needed more housing than that, that being on the side of more housing is like, a, is like a, a good way to be, you know? And I think as that sort of like bakes in, as that locks in, you'll start to see just things loosen up a bit. So more so than policy, um, I think the policy will follow from that. You know, I think that, um, you know, and so I don't think that will change tomorrow. Um, but I mean, on the negative side, NIMBYism is becoming more of a broadly, like I, I've, I've seen a lot of people start to refer to themselves as Jeffersonian. Um, yeah. The guy who did that thread that you were talking about on Twitter, um, you know, the, the one about Wall Street, J.D. Vance wrote this whole thing about. Um, he's And then I've seen a lot of people in, in, in California who are, you know, technically liberal type people call themselves Jeffersonian. So there's starting to be this sort of ideological counterbalance as well. But anyway, my point is, is that I do think that the thinking is starting to change. And I think that that thinking will be a huge, I think that thinking will prove to be more profound than you think. Because people, people keep these values their whole lives. It's like people became environmentalists in the 70s and they still 
vote for whatever the Sierra Club has endorsed in their local election, like no matter what, they don't think about it, they don't whatever, you know, in, in, in many cases vote for things that might even be anti-environment, you know, like Sierra Club has not been very good on density. So the, the sort of broad-based kind of development of worrying about housing um, and wanting more housing and there to be more housing options and not being so precious about your neighborhood, I think that's starting to become like a real value. And I think that um, as it's as it as it sort of like defines people's kind of as they get older and more influential, I think it will start to be a real thing. So last actual question, because I, I do have to, there's a decent number of Jeffersonians in this audience, so they will murder me if I don't ask this question. Yeah. I don't think I Jeffersonian agree. has to mean how certain people mean it. I'm just saying yeah. I'm starting to see it be adopted the way. Oh, no, and I, and I saw this yeah. in DC. There's actually, what's funny is nimbyism, so not in my backyard, is is being kind of reclaimed by certain people in the sense of, yeah, what's the matter with that? Nimbyism means that mm-hmm. we as a town could decide what we want to look like. And there are all these neoliberal libertarians mm-hmm. who are coming in trying to impose their vision on us. So I, I think it's important to advise. So, so here's a, just let's finish just then with this. What I, I agree with you that the movement, especially in the variety of states and cities is, is pushing towards building more. The more we're talking about housing as an issue just is going to push that in the direction of the building more position. What do you think the backlash to this looks like? Because the key thing is like these it's a policy area, so it's a pendulum. And mm-hmm. if you're saying that your 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 read is that this is swinging more towards construction and less towards the homeowner, often liberal. So this isn't once again, this isn't like a blue tribe, red tribe thing. If the pendulum yeah. was swinging away from San Francisco homeowner who's owned that house since the 40s and it's really nice, what is their backlash going to look like? Um all right, let me just quickly say to the people who identify as Jeffersonian that I did not mean that as a knock on 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 that so much. Um, I think I think of Jeffersonian as kind of meaning like small ownership and distributed power um, to some extent. You know, everybody having a stake and Jefferson sort of um, idealizing it in family farms or land. You know, but but everyone having a stake in the sort of capital structure of the society, right? And I think that there are people who are, you know, say, yimbies who might profess that same value, maybe not articulate it quite the same way, but they're like, I am locked out. I'm a renter for life right now. If you build a duplex, maybe I can own something, right? So I have actually met some yimbies who have said, not like yimbies, the kind you see in San Francisco, but I've met people who I who are very pro-housing in California, who have identified themselves as Jeffersonians mm-hmm. and because they want ownership. So I'm not saying it as a knock, I'm just saying I've started to see, and, and, and I think, and also I should note, fearing banks owning every house in America, whatever, that's like not a irrational thing. It's not a be, crazy instinct. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, um, so I think that those two things can be compatible with building more housing, right? Okay, um, this is a great wrap up question because the power broker, is on your shelf. And we talked about it at the beginning. And if you think about it, the power broker is really about this one guy who basically completely redeveloped New York, totally redeveloped the parkways, the freeways, the housing with almost no opposition whatsoever because he was a king. You know, he somehow got enough power that literally he could rebuild all of New York and nobody could stop him or challenge him in any way. I think of nimbyism and the rational nimbyism as a very rational 
um, you know, reaction to that type of planning. You know, Robert Moses is the thing in New York, but there were versions of that in every city in America. You, there were freeway wars in every city in America. California, San Francisco's kind of NIMBY architecture began over a fight over a freeway. So the same things that happened in the power broker happened everywhere. And I think that, you know, the pendulum, so you read about, he's writing about, we're sort of seeing the pendulum go too far the other way, but yeah. you know, at the beginning, it was probably the right thing, right? And I think, um, what will it look like? It will look like haphazard planning. It will look like, um, it'll look like this nasty world where everyone's still driving, um, but there aren't enough parking spaces. So I think there will be a chaotic urbanity to it. Um, and I think the backlash will, um, I don't know what, I can't tell you what the backlash will look like. I just know that there will be one. Um, uh, I mean, I guess it'll look like more control, more, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I suppose the easy, the easy unsexy thing to say to you is that if, it, if rules get more liberalized to make it easier to build, they'll get less liberalized to make it harder to build, right? You know, yeah. but, um, but I also think that we're at the beginning. I, I think that when I'm like 60 or, or sorry, unfortunately, when I'm like 80, uh, you and I will be talking about that. Yeah. Well, Connor, thank you so much. Um, this is such a great uh, place to leave things. We really appreciate it. Everyone, please check out Golden Gates, The Housing Crisis, and The Reckoning for the American Dream. It's a great book. Really helped inform this conversation. Thank you so much. Cool. Thank you. Bye. enjoyed the episode. I did not get into this during the introduction because we're on the road and I'm completely frazzled, but if you have not done so yet, go to the show notes and subscribe to our Substack. Check out our YouTube channel. We've picked up 30,000 subscribers since the start of the month, so that's been incredible. It's been really awesome to have our platform here. And of course, a massive thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. See you next time.